spills today, it looks like. Uh, dub a double whammy. <laughs> uh, it's all good. We'll, we'll get that cleaned up after service. Uh, cost of doing business, right? Well, we are in the gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 12, starting a new chapter. We've been like, man, chugging along in this book, and we spent a lot of time in uh, Mark chapter 11, but we're, we're going to start Mark chapter 12 today. But ha have you ever listened to a sermon, and uh, maybe it's been here or, or somewhere through your life, have you ever heard a sermon and think, man, that sermon was written just for me, that's just what I needed to hear, it's as if the pastor, like, considered what was going on in my life and then crafted a sermon to minister to that specific need that I have going on. Have you ever had that moment where it's just like, wow, I happened to show up on the day this passage was taught or this, this uh, was talked about and it's just really convicting. Like, I think we've all probably had those, those moments. Like, um, I've even had people come down after the service having preached and they're like, hey, I take it you know what's going on in my life uh, this week. And I'm like, no, I don't know what's going on in your life. I, I'm just preaching through the Bible, but they, they figure I did know just based on what, what was talked about. And, and so, you know, I, I don't write sermons based on what's going on in somebody's life. You know how I operate. I mean, we just go from one verse to the next, one paragraph to the next, uh, one, cha one chapter to the next. I mean, it's just kind of how I do it, I, and uh, it makes us kind of unique here. But I, I, I've even had people frustrated with me before. I preached a sermon that struck a nerve so it, that was so sensitive that they just figured I was targeting them. Like I, like I was just trying, like I was trying to smack them on the hand and I've had people even mad at me uh, over the years because that stuff just, it, it just happens. But you gotta believe when I tell you this, like when I, when I decide to preach through Mark and map out a year's worth of sermons, I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, yes, in four months, I know that person will be here. And I'm going to make sure this passage lands on exactly that day. And it's going to minister to exactly what's going on in their life. Like, you've given me way too much credit if you think I'm capable of that. I can't plan that well. I don't even know what I'm doing for dinner tonight. Like, it's just, it's just not in the cards for me. But it's happened so many times, even in the past decade of the journey, that when, when I do know of something going on in your life, and, and something in, in scripture is ahead of us and we're going to get there and it's going to address what's going on. I've even gotten to the point where I call people in advance if I do know something is going on and say, hey, I just want you to know this is just what's next. And uh, this isn't personal. I'm not targeting you. I'm just, hey, being true to the word and just we're just going one line at a time. And so I've, I've gotten to that point. But I, I can't plan those things out. But the Holy Spirit does. I, I know the Holy Spirit does time things just like that. And, um, you know, when that happens, people typically respond in one of two ways. Whenever that moment happens that the Holy Spirit just times it just right to convict you or maybe to frustrate you or maybe to challenge what you think about something, people typically respond to that collision in two ways. Number one, sometimes they'll repent. Sometimes they just know, wow, the timing of this, it's just... It's divine intervention. And so they repent, they, they feel that, convic that conviction, and they, they take it as a spiritual slap in the face that they needed, a punch to the gut, or, or you know, a wake-up call. They consider it uh, discipline, loving discipline from the Lord that he would time things so perfectly to convict them on that time that they came to church. Sometimes 
uh, people see that being ministered to by the Holy Spirit in a special way and they repent. I love it when people react like that. That is such a blessing to witness, but it's not how people always react. Sometimes when that nerve is struck, sometimes they're repulsed by it. Sometimes people come in here and they have rejected a certain truth that is in the Bible, and then when it comes up in Scripture, when they hear it preached against or that sin called out or that situation that convicts them in some special way, they just dig their claws in even more. They reject it even harder than what they previously rejected it. It's almost like when they've been confronted with this issue that they don't want to talk about, they, they just, their, their hearts harden. And so they especially aren't going to believe that. They're committed, their commitment to that falsehood is, is strengthened. And so that's typically how people respond whenever this timing is just right about it. With a sermon and a passage of scripture, they either repent or they're repulsed. Why do I bring this up today? Uh, well, because in the passage we're talking about, the beginning of Mark chapter 12, Jesus is teaching in a parable. And he is doing the very thing that I just tried to convince you that I don't do. And I'm telling you that I don't do. He is targeting a group of people amongst the listeners listening to his sermon with his teaching. He is taking that parable and he is slapping them on the hand. He is targeting them. He is teaching in a special way with this parable to say, this is about you, without saying, this is about you. <laughs> and it, it is a remarkable a remarkable moment, and it's a, it's a very stern warning to these people that have opposed him. Remember where we're at. Jesus has had the triumphal entry. Jesus has cleansed the temple. He has, he has kicked out all the, the money changers, the people selling sacrifices, anyone even buying sacrifices in the, in the court of the Gentiles, which is that big portion of the temple. Anybody in there doing that sort of activity, he got them out of there, right? And so he was, he was confronted then by the head honchos, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the people that make up that ruling council of Israel, the Sanhedrin. They have decided it's time to confront Jesus. They're not happy with him. They want to question his authority, and that's what we talked about last week. So they get in his face, and they're, they're questioning his authority, and I won't rehash all of that interaction that we talked about last week. But what it does is Jesus takes that opportunity, having interacted with them, to teach, with, to teach everybody that's there. All the people that have gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the Passover festival and the people that are coming into the temple along with the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. People are all now gathered around listening to Jesus teach, and he is going to teach in a specific way. He's going to teach with a parable, as he often does in the Gospels, except when you're reading Mark. When we think about the parables of Jesus, we usually have to turn to Matthew, where they're all over the place, or Luke. But when you read Mark, you don't see that many parables. This is kind of a special moment in that this parable that takes place here is one of the few that exist in this Gospel, and it's a short story that Jesus uses to warn the opposition, to warn the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who have just confronted him and will continue to confront him as we work through this chapter. So we uh, are, are in this parable today to understand what happened then and how they were confronted. And while we do that, I want to encourage you 
to consider how you may be confronted by this parable as well. I'm not targeting you today. I don't know exactly what's going on in your life, but the Holy Spirit may be targeting you, may be trying to wake you up, may be trying to spiritually give you a little gut punch here and challenge you. And if that is the case, I just want you to be open to that. Be prayerful about that. God bless you. <laughs> One of the famous Adam Louderman sneezes. <laughs> oh, was it you? Oh, it was Jamie. Man, that, oh. Well, my apologies, Adam. You are in the clear. We have a rival to your sneeze. Wow. Jamie Reinhardt, ladies and gentlemen. Jamie Reinhardt. Man. Suddenly, Adam sneezes and is impressive. <laughs> you got to roll with the punches sometimes when you're up here. So, uh, we are going to read the first 12 verses. I'm going to do uh, uh, one of those sermons where I read all of the scripture up front in its entirety. I'm not going to go, I, we'll go back and cover line by line, but we're, we're going to read it all together and talk about this parable. And here, I want you to really try to pay attention to the different elements of this parable specifically because each of these elements in this parable has a connection to something that's happening in Jesus' day. He's making a statement about his situation and so each component, every moving part of this parable has a symbolic connection to this moment that Jesus is in there at the temple and the scenario he is there in the Holy Week and in, in the Passion Week. So really try to gather and collect and organize these different components as I read this parable to you. This is the parable of the tenants. And he began to speak to, to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They perceived, hey, wait a second, what that dude's preaching? I think he's talking about us. I think he's talking about us here. Did you notice that at the end? They perceived that, what he, that, that the parable that he told was against them. This, this is the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who were just confronting Jesus amongst this crowd. They were the ones like, hey, I think he's targeting us. 
How dare he do that? Why would they think that? We're going to dive into this, uh, the elements, the components of this parable to see why that is. What made this obvious to them is, number one, the lingo that he uses. Jesus is using very familiar Old Testament lingo in this parable that he's teaching there in the temple. So some of that lingo may not be really familiar to us, but if you were a chief priest, a scribe especially, an expert in the law, or an elder, you would really recognize some of the connections that, that are taking place here. That would be really obvious. And so they were making these connections as Jesus was teaching this parable. They just couldn't do anything about it because everybody was captivated by this parable and they were loving the teachings of Jesus. So in this parable, here's some of the components. There's a vineyard. There's a fence around the vineyard. There's a wine press. And there's a tower. And so here's what would have immediately uh, connected in, the, in their minds. In the Old Testament, there are several moments in which Israel is spoken of as a vineyard. So this is a very clear connection. This is a, a common theme in the Old Testament. His people, Israel, were often referred to as a vineyard. So here's a homework text. I didn't, have, I didn't think we had the time or the luxury to go through all of these Old Testament moments, but if you want a homework passage, the best one to go to is Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. And so later today, take a moment to read Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. And I'll give you some of the, the cliff notes of what takes place there. In the, in the meantime, this is a, a moment in Isaiah's prophetic Old Testament book written, you know, seven, eight hundred years before the time of Jesus. It's, it's a moment called the vineyard and the Lord, uh, the vineyard the Lord destroyed. And so in that moment, there's a vineyard. That vineyard represents Israel. And in that moment, there's a fence around that vineyard, just like God's people in Jerusalem would have that big wall around the Jerusalem protecting it. There's a wine press in Isaiah chapter 5 in that moment. There's a tower there. I mean, it's as if Jesus was just taking this moment, this prophetic text in Isaiah chapter 5, and using it line by line to create a parable to target these men with. That's exactly what he was doing. And so in Isaiah chapter 5, what was happening is this vineyard planted by God was a vineyard that was supposed to produce grapes. And what happens is this vineyard didn't produce grapes, it produced wild grapes. And so it wasn't producing the fruit that it was supposed to produce. And so what does Jesus, what, what does God do to his vineyard in, in Isaiah? He destroys this vineyard. And of course, Isaiah was using this teaching moment back in his day to warn Israel, you're not producing the fruit you were intended to produce. You're not worshiping at the, temple, at the temple in the way we were instructed to. And so if you don't get your act together, if you don't repent, God is going to destroy his vineyard. And that was Isaiah's lot in life, was to just warn and rebuke God's people over and over and over. And so he would write things like this, and they would reject him. He would write more things like this, and they would reject him. He would write more prophetic texts, and they would reject him. And eventually, after all of that rejection... God did exactly what he said he was going to do in that prophetic text in Isaiah 5. He destroyed the vineyard. It came in the form of the Assyrian army. Literally leveled the place. And his prophecy came true. So by Jesus' day, they knew this text and recognized it. And they would think, man, 
If only Israel would have listened to Isaiah. They hated Isaiah. If only they would have listened to his rebuke, this man of God, this prophet sent by God to his people to warn them. But they just wouldn't listen. Had we lived back then, boy, we would have listened. They, say the, they, they would say the same thing you and I say all the time when we think about the Gospels. Well, had I been one of those disciples, I wouldn't have rejected Jesus. Had I been in that moment, I wouldn't have cheered from the crowd, crucify him. We make the same mistake all the time. But they, they, would, they would think, man, Isaiah, his, his text is so precious, it's so holy, it's so true. And here Jesus is using this familiar, beloved text from Isaiah so he can make these very direct statements about the situation that he was in. Would they listen this time? Would they listen this time? Here's the parable. A man planted a vineyard. In Jesus' parable, this man represents God. God has planted this vineyard. This vineyard represents God's people, Israel. When he planted this vineyard, he put a fence around it. This is in Jesus' parable again. He put a fence around it, just like Jerusalem in the day of Jesus. Had this big wall with gates surrounding it, protecting it. A matter of fact, you're, 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 the security in your city was really wrapped up in the wall that surrounded you. If you didn't have a wall around your city, you were, you were defenseless, you were open to attack, and so they, they saw so much strength and sustainability and protection through that wall. There's a wine press and a tower, again, within this fenced-in area of the vineyard, that wine press and the tower, that's the fruit of worship in the temple. This fruit is meant to, to produce something, or the, the, this vineyard is meant to produce something. It's fruit, right? And so the worship at the temple, it was... It was designed by God to do something very specific. And they were given specific instructions to worship in a specific way. And people were given the responsibility to carry out that worship in that specific way. And we can see all those specific ways by going back and reading the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, right, or the Septuagint. And so... Uh, uh, and so, so we had the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who were given these instructions and given the responsibility to carry out this worship. And their connection to this parable, they are the tenants. And the tenants are obviously those bad guys in this parable. So the tenants represent these uh, chief priests and scribes and elders. They, it says that the tenants leased the vineyard. They were given this responsibility to take care of the vineyard, and the, and the, and the landowner went away. So this is a common practice even still today, right? If you own a bunch of land, you can lease out your land to be farmed by farmers. And when you make that agreement to let a farmer uh, farm your land and you lease it out to them, the agreement states that you're going to get some of the profits from the, from the crops that are grown on the property that you own. I mean, I have people in my family that have this arrangement still to this day. But this has always been the case. Farmers do this all the time uh, throughout history. It's been going on for, for thousands of years. And so these, this is a great example, something they can understand. These tenants have been given this responsibility. They are leasing this vineyard, but they're not holding up their part of the deal, are they? They get all the profits, and they want to keep it all for themselves. The landowner sends a servant. There's that other component. He sends a servant to collect the fruit of the vineyard. What happens? Those tenants didn't provide the fruit. They beat the first servant that sent to them and sent him away empty-handed. Can you believe? Can you believe the injustice that just took place there? That's not even their land. They leased this land. They're not even going to pay the, the, in, the, in the lease agreement. 
So the landowner sends another servant. How do, they, how do they treat that servant? He's struck on the head. He's mistreated. He's treated shamefully, it says. Those tenants, who do they think they are, right? You can imagine being in the crowd at the temple, listening to Jesus teach this parable, you know, component by component, and, and developing this story, and people getting outraged. How dare they, they, they treat the servants like this? It's a, it's a very clear injustice, and it gets worse. They sent, the, the landowner sends another servant, he, he's struck on the head, and, the, and another servant, and they just flat out kill that servant. It seems to be escalating as the parable goes on. These tenants are finding it easier and easier to mistreat those sent by the landowner. It says, many others they beat, and some they killed. So these servants that Jesus speaks of in this parable are symbolic of the prophets that God has sent his people Year after year, generation after generation after generation. You go back and you read the Old Testament prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets, and you read their books and they're all warnings to God's people and that God's people never seem to listen. God's people always treat the prophet horribly. They either beat them, drive them out of the land, or just flat out kill them. All of them. So like, some examples of this, let's take Isaiah for example. It's, it's believed that Isaiah, when he was rejected God's people, he was sawn, it, sawed in half with a wooden saw. Being sawn, sawed in half would be awful, right? With a wooden saw, though? Jeremiah, he was constantly mistreated. He's known as the weeping prophet, always whining about something, they would think, right? What's he weeping about now? Telling us that we're doing something wrong again, I imagine. They couldn't stand him. They threw him into a pit once. He didn't die. So they stoned him to death. Ezekiel, they treated the same way. Amos, he, had to, he, he was like chronologically when you read Amos. If, you wanna, if you've never read any prophetic Old Testament book, read Amos. Because chronologically, he was the first one. And so when you understand Amos, you've ha, you got a great idea as to what's happening in the rest of the prophetic books. And so they're not in chronological order. They're, they're, you got the minor prophets and the major prophets. We just call them the major prophets because there's a lot more content, uh, not because they're any more significant. We call the minor prophets the minor prophets because there's less content. Uh, but Amos, you understand Amos, you're going to get a, uh, the gist of what the Old Testament prophets were about. Zechariah, he was rejected and stoned. Micah, you can go read in 1 Kings 22 and you'll see that in response to his prophecies and, and, sent by, and message, messages sent by God to give his people, they beat him in the face. If you were an Old Testament prophet, you had a rough life. It was just not that fun. And people in Jesus' day thought, wow, these remarkable men, we would never treat them like that. Had we lived back in that day, it would have been different. Listen to what, Jesus knows that's what they're thinking. Now, when you look in Matthew's gospel, and I want to read it to you, at the same moment, Matthew provides a little bit more content. If you remember our time in Matthew, there's several woes that Jesus preaches to these guys, and here's one of them. This is Matthew 23. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves, and you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. 
How are you to escape this being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of the Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So in case they didn't get the idea, <laughs> Jesus was pretty clear. Let me sum things up for you. You probably, you're so vain, you probably think the song is about you. It is, right? right? So Jesus flushes it out more, saying, you guys, you have a long history of rejecting God's prophets. You just never stop. You can't get enough of rejecting his messengers. You're going to keep doing it. You just, you know, you reject the guys like John the Baptist, you're going to reject me. You see where the story and the parable went, right? And the very obvious connection that is made to the son in the parable, that landowner sends his only beloved son. They'll respect my son. Well, of course, that represents Jesus, the Messiah. Those tenants, they see the son as an opportunity. Oh, here's the son. We can put this to an end right now. We'll, we'll kill him, and we'll, and we'll keep the inheritance all to ourselves. And they, they took him, they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So what an injustice. This would have really gotten those people fired up, right? Jesus is just, he's, he's indirectly saying, you're going to keep doing this to the, to the point where you just kill me too. You're going to kill me like you always kill those who are sent by God the Father. And so in light of that, Jesus what will the owner of the vineyard do? And again, you can imagine people getting riled up. Kill them. Kill those tenants. The, the, the owner of the vineyard, he should go destroy the tenants. Get new tenants. And Jesus gets to this point after the parable in which he begins to quote scripture. You'll notice anytime you're reading along, you see a paragraph, and then all of a sudden you see these indentations. That means something's being quoted from the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23 of Psalm 18. And notice what he says right before that. Have you not read this scripture? Do you even Bible, bro? That's kind of the, like he's saying it sarcastically. Of course they would have known Psalm 18. We've already studied it recently because Psalm 18 is what people would have been singing when they showed up for Passover. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes from Psalm 118. And so there's more to Psalm 118. Jesus is saying, have you guys not read this passage, Psalm 118? There's, there's more to it here, right? It gets, you go on a little further, and it talks about the stone that's rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the, was the Lord's doing, and is it marvelous in our eyes? And again, whenever that psalm was originally written, this stone represented Israel, okay? This stone that everybody else in the world rejected Jesus, or God takes this stone, Israel, and he makes it the cornerstone. What the rest of the world sees as a throwaway nation, God takes Israel and makes them his people. This is the, the cornerstone. And so over time, from the point in which that was written to Jesus' day, this was seen as a messianic prophecy, just like earlier in the passage was seen as a messianic prophecy. And so this stone was this Messiah that would be thrown away by everybody else, but God would make him the cornerstone. And so the religious leaders are going to try to throw away that stone that is Jesus. God makes him the cornerstone. 
Talk about calling your shot through this parable, right? He's just calling a shot right in their face, right in their face. Let me tell you what you're going to do. Let me tell you how this is going to pan out. Let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you what's going to happen. It's, what's going to happen is the same thing that's always happened with you guys, you religious leaders, you hypocrites. And so at that moment, they got it. They perceived that he had told the parable against them. They're confronted with this truth. They've, they've collided with it. And what do they do? Well, they could have repented, right? They could have in that moment repented and accepted Jesus as that Messiah. But, but how did they respond? People typically, when they feel targeted by that teaching, when they, when they feel targeted by the sermon, targeted by the passage of Scripture, they either repent or they're repulsed. And they're clearly repulsed. They want to kill them. They just can't do anything about it because everybody around them loves them so much. So, you notice that line, though, in the passage that's quoted, and it is marvelous in our eyes? It even has like a, like a question mark there. Like, is, isn't it amazing? Should it even be amazing that God would take what is worthless to the world and make it the most valuable thing? Should that be marvelous to us? It's God. He can do anything. He can do the impossible. And this is exactly what God does through the gospel of Jesus. Isn't it marvelous that he takes Jesus takes his very rejection and he uses his rejection to gain our acceptance. Isn't that profound? It's such a profound truth in the gospel. He takes his rejection. God's people rejected his son and he uses that very rejection to give us acceptance, that we could gain acceptance. We're the ones that should be rejected by him. But yet he takes his rejection and gives us acceptance. That's how he is the cornerstone. And our belief in him makes us a part of this new temple, right? Makes us a part of the Christian church. He's building something new through his son in the gospel. And it's a marvelous thing. And so this, this parable is a gracious and merciful warning to you and I. It's meant to warn me. It's meant to warn you. When you are confronted with who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, when you're confronted with the gospel of Jesus as stated in scripture, do you accept that as truth or do you reject it? Have you accepted his beloved son whom he sent to die on a cross for our sins, to give us his righteousness? Do you accept that gospel truth? Do you repent? Do you change the way that you think? We don't naturally think this? Do you, do you read this? Do you hear it preached to you and believe it? Or are you repulsed by it? When you hear the gospel preached to you, do you dig your claws in deeper to that rejection you know that you have deep down in your soul? Does your heart harden? We are given this parable in moments like these in scriptures so that we would repent. It's it's grace, but that grace has an expiration date. We are given time in this life to repent and to respond, and that's just pure mercy and grace from God. But it will come to an end, and so we are given moments like these to be confronted so that collision would happen, so that it would be in your face. Am I targeting you and the, and the, and the tension that may exist in your head right now? Well, I'm trying to target the church with God's word as I'm always supposed to. That's part of my job. But maybe the Holy Spirit is truly convicting you right now. 
and telling you, you're the one rejecting me. You keep digging your claws in more. You keep hardening your heart. Stop it. Turn. Repent. I would encourage you, if that's you today, and the Holy Spirit has targeted you, respond. Respond with a heart of repentance. Respond. Soften your heart. Receive the gospel as truth. Take communion with us today. That's what we do when we believe. We take communion to remember his righteousness and his blood shed on the cross. That's how we worship. Respond today, even if today is the first time. Or maybe you've pretend responded so many times in the past, and today feels genuine. Do that and worship with us. I want to close this in prayer. We'll pass out communion and sing about the gospel together. Lord, I pray for those who have hard hearts when they hear this gospel truth. Lord, it's so often that we we waver whether or not to be as forceful as what your word is when we preach and share your truth. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to target anyone. I don't want to beat them with the Bible as we so stereotypically think of in moments like these. But Lord, it is just so gracious of you to give us these stern warnings. This is truth. This is truth, Lord. And I pray that people would be softened to this truth, that they would respond, that they would repent, Lord, that they would believe, that we wouldn't be a part of this long line of people who continuously reject you over and over and continuously not listen to you. But Lord, that we would be like those who hear, repent, and believe. Father, we want to see these things take place, that your kingdom would expand and that your glory would be made known throughout the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.